Please open your Bibles back to Acts chapter 10. That will be our text for uh, today. Thank you for leading us, uh, Chuck and choir and praise team. We appreciate your uh, ministry through song to us today. Father, bless now your word upon which we stand and help us, Father, to live out of it, both in its precepts and its principles. But Lord, help us to be sensitive, obedient, responsive to your spirit to accomplish all that you want in Jesus' name. Amen. I haven't mentioned it in a long time because it's kind of embarrassing in some ways. And so some of you may not know, recall, um, part of my childhood, if you're new in the church, I don't think I've talked about this in a while, but in my childhood, I often find myself, I found myself on the weekends um, out following my dad and my brothers, uh, some of my uncles uh, out in the woods uh, following some dogs, uh, hound dogs, and uh, carrying Coleman lanterns, and we were we were hunting for these, uh, for possums. Yeah. <laughs> we actually ate the little marsupials. And I know it sounds strange, um, but that's the way it was. I probably can track down my grandmother's recipe for baked possum, should you want it for a Sunday school fellowship. <laughs> it is served best with yams, um, and you need to... Keep the possum for a few weeks and feed it corn and water, clean it out, fatten it up a little bit, and uh, then it's really, really not good, but you... (laughs) Uh. Anyway, one night possum hunting with my brother, Danny, he's 10 years older, and my brother-in-law, who's now with the Lord, and... Me, we were riding in a car that my great uncle Bill was driving, my grandmother's brother. My dad and the others were in trucks with the dog boxes on the back, and you know, we we're going to rendezvous at the point where we would get out into the woods with the dogs. And it was a night in which uh, we almost certainly died. Uh, my uncle Bill was a very strong man, but he had a congenital eye problem, and it passed down to his kids as well. And so he wore these very, very thick. Coke bottle thick glasses. He was very uncoordinated uh, man. Uh, just it was just something. There was nothing they could do for him, and so he needed a lot of light uh, to see well. And so on that night, we were driving down this two-lane uh, country road, and he has the lights on bright because he needs that to see. And so we met a car that was coming from the other direction uh, toward us, and it flashed its lights. You know to to tell us to dim ours because it was blinding them. Well, if you're under 40 years of age, you may not know that dimmer switches on cars used to be not up on the steering column, but down on the floorboard. On the left-hand side up here, you'd have to find the little button. How many of you remember that? Say how old I am. Well, I'm not as, not as old as I thought. And so my Uncle Bill, who was not familiar with that particular car and couldn't see, he couldn't find it with his foot, And so he leaned down to try to find it like this. (laughs) Well, while he was doing that, we started drifting toward the other lane. And we started yelling at him the closer that car got to us. Because when we started, it was going to be a head-on collision. We were screaming, Bill! 
I, I can't recall how we missed the wreck. I was in the back seat. Either my brother-in-law was in the front seat and, and grabbed the wheel, or he raised up at the last moment. I don't know. I was just scared out of my wits. And we barely escaped a head-on collision that night as he was trying to adjust the lighting on the car. We began a series a few weeks ago, three weeks ago to be exact, in which we are learning about God's call to us to be luminaries, to be light. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Our foundational text for this series is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And I want you to turn back there. We'll look at this text each week and just remind ourselves of it as Paul is writing to this church. And he tells them here that as a congregation, they're to be light. And so he says, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Literally, it's more like luminaries, light, reflective light in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So far, we've talked about the big picture issue that we're indeed called to be luminaries who seek to affect the environment around us. Last week, we focused upon the fact that to help us with that, God has given us internal power now with the Holy Spirit. The praise team was singing, same power. And last week, we looked at when the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in the lives of Christians at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. So Jesus was on the earth 40 days after he was resurrected, then he ascended. And 10 days later, as they're gathered up in this room, 120 of them, the Spirit of God comes upon them to fulfill and give them the power to be the light Christ has called them to be, to be his witnesses, Acts 1.8 says, beginning in Jerusalem and going all around the world. And so we talked about that last week. Today, we're going to begin moving forward, looking at specifics of what this looks like in our lives. How does one live his or her life to be a light? What does it take? And what does it take for a church? We said early on that to be luminaries will take concrete decisions. It will not just happen. And so that's going to be our focus today. This is going to be a framework message, laying the foundation for a lot of other messages we're going to to go through over the next several weeks as we talk about how we can concretely become the light Christ would have us to be. Today, I'm looking for one commitment out of you, if you're a Christian. One commitment I'm asking you to make. And when we come down to the end of this service, and if you are a believer, I'll unfold this as we go. I want to ask you and challenge you to make this commitment. If we're going to be light, this decision will have to be made and truly made, not just as something we say, that we want to be, but something we commit to do in our lives. If we make it and keep living out of the commitment, we'll never be able to look at our lives the same, our church the same, and we'll be living against the current of our culture. We'll be living against a lot of the current of the church culture, and I don't mean by that just what you're thinking, but it is going to be something that is beautiful if we can embrace it. So in Acts chapter 10, we set the stage with the story. We'll go back and forth with it a little bit as we make our way through it. 
So we have the two primary people here, Peter and Cornelius. Peter, as you know, was a Jewish fisherman whom Jesus called to be one of his disciples. He became one of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He is the one who steps out in faith out of the boat. He is a strong personality, an impetuous person at times in what he does. He sometimes acts before he thinks, speaks before he thinks. He was a common man, as were all of the disciples, the original disciples. He was not educated with the elite young men of his time. He just had the basic education of a young Jewish boy. Now, the Jewish authorities certainly viewed Peter and the other disciples in this way. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, when they have started preaching after Pentecost and started doing the work of the kingdom, they get brought up before the Sanhedrin. So just think of this as the local governing authority, Jewish governing authority in Jerusalem. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And they have been with Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit is living within them. And so there's something powerful about their lives, but not according to the standards of the world. So after the resurrection, and when the Holy Spirit came, which we looked at last week, Peter emerges as the central one preaching in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And he finds himself one of the key leaders of the movement of light. Yet Peter also finds that this new phase of following Jesus is going to bring Peter challenges that he never has faced before. His following Jesus is going to cause him to have to pray and think about his life like never before. This calling to be light for him and for us is no easy or light matter. And so this text in Acts 10 reminds us of this fact. And it's important for this text for us to look at it today because it becomes a paradigm, a, a structure for all of us as we think about our lives and being luminaries. To be luminaries... We're going to all have to come to this Peter moment that we find right here in this text. We're going to have to come to the, to the thing Peter faced at Cornelius' threshold. And the question is, am I willing to do what it takes to be a luminary in the world, in real concrete situations of life? Now, in this story, we find the elements we're going to have to deal with in this calling to be light. It won't just happen. We'll have to take action. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, to let your light shine before men. That reminds us then that we have something to do with this, of letting or allowing our light to shine before men. We're involved in how bright is the light, how clear is the light, how free is the light to go forth into the world. And so, what do we need to pay attention to here with Peter? Well, first of all, when Peter shows up at Cornelius' door, Peter had to consider his ethical life. He had to consider his ethical, his moral decisions, the things he would do in his life and what he wouldn't do. And so as you think about Peter, 
These guys come and knock on the door. They ask for him. He begins to walk toward Cornelius' house in another town. If you read the text, it tells you it, it took two days, two days of walking to get to Cornelius' house. And you know, I can just imagine Peter's mind was reeling with conflict. That he's going to this Gentile home. He's a Jew. And so he's walking along the way. And I I can just imagine Peter saying, what am I going to do when I get there? And you can tell that he's been torn from the beginning of the conversation. uh, From the beginning, from the conversation he has with Cornelius. That this new situation has caused him some personal stress. He's had to do some hard evaluating regarding what he had known in his life and practiced up to that particular point in his life. And so when he got there, he went into the house, which was a radical step for him just to step over the threshold. That was a big step. And he goes in and there's all these Gentiles in the house. And Peter... He voices how difficult this is for him. He voices how radical of a step this has been for him. If you look in Acts 10, verses 27 and 28, it says, While talking with them, Peter went inside, stepped over the threshold, found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. God has shown me that I shall not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So he obeyed and went. He had seen this vision, but he has inner conflict. What am I going to do when I get there? He gets there, he goes inside, and he says, You know, I'm not supposed to be doing this from my background. Big step. Now, what Peter's referring to here is not some law that you find in the Old Testament that said you could not go into a Gentile's house. It's something uh, more like a taboo. The Jews did not go into Gentiles' houses. They had a reason for it, but this was more of a cultural taboo. And even Gentiles knew this was the way Jews were. It's sort of like, I don't know how we can think of it as Americans. It's not really a good analogy. I mean, we don't knowingly eat dog or cat or horse. Though some people in the world do, right? I've sometimes wondered if I'm eating cat in some restaurants, but uh, I don't know. But it, so you've eaten possum, so it really won't, won't matter to you. <laughs> but but I mean, we don't knowingly do we eat dog or cat or horse. Although you know, if you go to places like Korea, China, you may find those things uh, eaten there. But for the Jews, this was more serious than just. Uh, A cultural taboo like that, we just don't do that. For the Jews, it was more serious. There was a religious component to it. You see, the danger of going into a Gentile home or eating with them or being around them was that they ate unclean food. They did unclean things. And so being around them in this way would make it dangerous for the Jew to commit some religious violation to become unclean themselves, which would affect their religious practice and what they could do and couldn't do for different periods of time. And furthermore, there was cultural and racial animosity felt between Gentile and Jew. The prayer of a Jewish man then was, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was the prayer of a Jewish man. So for a Jew, beyond the exact commands of the law, 
They had to think about the implications of the law, and that affected how they lived their personal lives. So sometimes this would lead to doing new things as a Christian for these new Jewish Christians. This is a new thing for Peter. And then on the other hand, when people came to know Jesus, sometimes it would lead them to stop doing things that they've done before. This is what happened to the Gentiles when they became Christians. If you go over to Acts chapter 15, there was a debate that went on in the life of the church. Do we make these Jews, uh, Gentiles act like Jews when they trust in Jesus? The decision of the church in Acts 15 was no, we, we don't ask them to act like Jews. They don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to follow the dietary laws. And as the church is working out, you know, how does the law play out in the New Testament? How does this work out in this time now of grace? They, they made that decision. Gentiles don't have to act like Jews once they become Christians. But they wrote a letter to these new Gentiles for them in relationship to their lives when they became Christians. And there were some things they were to stop doing that they did. Some were sinful things, some were not. And so if you look down in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, they send this letter out to the Gentiles. And uh, he, it says at uh, verse 28, it's Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Why? Because that offends Jews. You are to abstain from blood, that is, animals meat with blood still in it, from the meat of strangled animals, that related to the Jewish law, and then from sexual immorality, which was a moral issue. And so these were things that Gentiles were doing before they became Christians, and they were asked to stop doing these things so as not to offend the Jews living around them as they were trying to come together as one community of Jew and Gentile. And so for us, when we become Christians... We begin to follow after Jesus. We're going to have to be people, if we want to be light, who have to begin to think about our ethics, both the moral aspects that the Bible talks about and then sometimes cultural things and how we live out of those. Sometimes we may alter something that may not be specifically sinful, but it is a hindrance to our mission. I mean, missionaries have had to learn this going around the world. It used to be, you know, when they'd go to Africa, they would take all of their uh, uh, clothing, the way you dress to be in worship, and the instruments that you use in England in worship, and they began to try to reach the natives in those uh, places, and they would uh, lead them to Christ, and they would colonize them over here in a little separate Christian community, and they would sing like Westerners, try to get them to dress like Westerners, and eventually they cut them off from their people. They cut off the bridges of God, which is a famous book about this issue. And eventually, missionaries came to understand, we've got to stop trying to make these people in Africa, Asia, other parts of the world like us in the cultural things, because we're cutting off their people from really coming to Jesus. So sometimes there may be things we need to stop. Sometimes there may be things we need to start that may not necessarily be sinful. Always, though, this is true, as we think about working with outsiders, um, this is always true as we relate to them, but sometimes this is also true in relationship to how we, we act with each other within the life of the church, about my ethics towards you as my brother and sister. 
And so if you go to the book of Romans chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, you can see that as they were sorting out this issue of uh, what to eat and what not to eat, as uh, Jews got saved, Gentiles got saved, one church coming together now, people out of all these backgrounds. In Acts 14, verses 13 and 14, you can read the whole chapter here about this issue. But Paul writes and says, Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. So here, it's not a sinful thing what you eat, but Paul says, you have to consider your ethics both with unbelievers out there, if you're going to be light, and you also have to consider your ethics internally, both in relationship to sinful things and in relationship to cultural things, so that you don't hurt the other brother or sister. And then, this is always true when we come to be thinking about it, being luminaries in relationship to our obedience to the ethical commands of Scripture. And so if you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 5 through 9, I want you to look at this passage with me because here we see this idea of light brought up again. In Ephesians 5, verses 5 through 9, Paul says, he's just talked about... Um, Verse 3, not having a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed. These are improper for God's holy people. Nor, verse 4, should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're what? Light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So when it comes to ethical matters that are directly sinful, then our lives must change to be conformed to what the Bible says to be obedient to the Lord. We're not under the law in that we're not seeking to obey it for salvation, but we are under the law of Christ and part of our obedience grows out of our desire to be luminaries. And so if we're going to be luminaries, we have to begin thinking about our lives then at this level, ethically. What I will do and what I will not do in relationship to outsiders when it comes to issues that may be culturally taboo but not necessarily sinful. How I will relate to fellow Christians within the life of the church And then also, how I will deal with the specific commands of Scripture about what is right and what is wrong, that I will conform my life to those. The world may not understand why I do what I do, how I live, but I will be light in that way. Light does not always mean the world is going to accept us or think we're wonderful. 
Now, light sometimes is going to provoke resistance in the world, but we're called to live in this way. So Peter had to consider his ethical lifestyle. Do you think about that in your life? Do you get up and you think about your life ethically, what you do, what you don't do in relationship to what we should not be doing that is directly sinful, what we should be doing that is directly commanded, and then to think through even the issues that are cultural issues that we've grown up with, our expectations, should I do or not do this, in trying to reach outsiders, we're called to think at that depth in our lives. But not only did Peter have to consider his own personal ethics, Peter also had to consider his life within the church. What Peter did on that day, it affected the church. If you go to the book of Acts chapter 11, I'll show you that what I'm telling you is true. So Acts 10, he does this at Cornelius' house. And Christians back then, well, they talk like they do now. So the word spread. Verse 1, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That's not all they heard, though. It says, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, they said, Great, Peter, all the Gentiles are turning to Jesus. Hallelujah. No, it says, when he went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, these are Jewish believers, what does it say they did to him? They criticized him. Boy, I'm really thankful that I've never had to go through that as a Christian, aren't you? (laughs) Foreign to us. Criticized him. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's how I think this was said. It wasn't said, well, Peter... You went into the house of an uncircumcised man and, and ate with him. That is just sweet. We're so proud of you, Peter. No, that's, that's not how this was voiced. They criticized him. And so then Peter explains why he did this. He tells them about the Holy Spirit coming and confirming these people in coming to Christ. And I love here, even in the life of the early church, The beginnings of maturity being seen. It says in verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, as you read this then, the church is being affected. Peter's been affected. But now, the whole church has to begin to grow and adjust to this new reality brought about by the leading of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit came last week. And there's no written rule here about what's to be done. This is the Spirit leading them. And they're making adjustments as they go in relationship to the Spirit. So Peter steps over the line. Now he explains it, and the Spirit has confirmed what they're doing. People are being saved. And so now the church begins to adopt this reality. And so as we think about being light, not only do I as an individual Christian have to think about my life, my ethics in relationship to being light, but we have to think about these things corporately as well. We have to think about these issues in relationship to our mission. They had a mission to the world. So do we. And they make corporate decisions. 
of how to relate to these Gentiles who needed to know Christ, who had told them to make disciples beginning in Jerusalem and to go all around the world. And as we read in Acts chapter 15, they made the decision, when you become a Christian as a Gentile, we're not going to ask you to act like a Jew. Big step for these people, because all they'd ever known was Jewish law and ritual and all of those things. But they made an adjustment. You know, the call to be luminaries was not only individual and corporate for them, but it's, it's always corporate as well for us, for the life of the church. If you go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, you find the beginning of the letters to the seven churches. And you remember what John wrote. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Isn't that wonderful? Who are these? One is the angel or the leaders of the churches. The other is the church itself. Is a lampstand. What does a lampstand do? It gives off light. And so Jesus here is saying, my church is a light-bearing people. We are the lampstands of, of Christ. Therefore, We have to think about how our life within the body of Christ affects the light we're giving off outside the body. That's certainly the point made in that foundational passage in Philippians 2 where Paul says you guys have to get along so that you will shine like stars in the universe. That was the point. But beyond that, in their corporate life, it affected everything. You see, the church was really tight-knit, much more so than we are to our detriment. They were a community of people thinking about, because they're a minority people, right? They're outnumbered in the world. They're in these cities full of all these pagan gods, and they're this new little group of people here. And they have to think about engaging those folks and how they appear to them as well. So this affected their attitude toward work. As believers, if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 10 through 12, we see that Paul writing to the churches at Thessalonica, or the church at Thessalonica, he says in verses 10 through 12, he says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and that is to, uh, to, to love God's people. In verse 11, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business. And work with your hands just as what we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. It was applied to how they did their work. They were to be a hard-working group of people. He says also later in Thessalonians that if a man won't work, don't let him eat. Because some of the Christians were being idle. This affected also in how they handled people who showed up to worship. If you go to the book of James, chapter 2, we see James having to bring some correction to a worship service. How people were being seated became a big issue. The issue here was not, you know, saving seats and telling somebody a seat's saved. But the issue here was the type of person coming into the service. 
And so he says in James chapter 2, verse 2, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so it affected how they looked at people coming into the worship service. And to think corporately, how do we handle this? We handle this in a way that we want everybody to feel welcome and equal among the body. And so we do not have any nearsighted ushers. We have ushers that really can see what they need to be doing. Seat them in the right place. And they also applied this to family life. If you go back to the book of Titus chapter 2. Y'all following all this scripture today? Titus 2. We see in the life of the church that they taught each other. It wasn't just the pastor teaching, but they taught each other. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he's talking to the older women, teaching the younger women. It says, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind And to be subject to their husbands. Why? Notice what he says. So that no one will malign the word of God. You see, they they didn't want to be seen as a people who were undermining the social fabric. They wanted to have orderly lives. So that the church's mission could be accomplished in that particular way. And if we're going to be luminaries as churches. As Concord Baptist Church. We have to think corporately not only about our ethical expectations for our churches, but also how we can build bridges to the culture around us. And if what we are doing is dimming the light, are we willing to hit the switch to better adjust the light we're giving off? Let me say three things about this matter, which we are going to revisit in more detail as we make our way through this series. Churches that do not adjust in relationship to their mission and the needs of the mission are going to die. The unstated moniker in many of America's 350,000 Protestant churches is we have never done it that way before. That's what these guys were saying to Peter. He stepped over the threshold, Peter. We ain't done it that way before, Peter. And then on top of that, I would add that some of them would say, and we're not going to try to do things in a different way. And I want to say this. We do not live in a culture of hardened, encrusted people that are resistant to exploring the Christian faith. We live in a culture that's spiritually curious and open to hearing the message. What we do live in is in a culture of hardened, encrusted churches, stuck in ruts of doing things the same way they've been done for 50 years and not willing to adjust. And many of them are dying. Did you know that of our 350,000 Protestant churches, 80 to 90% of them are plateaued or they're having a slow funeral? 8,000 shut their doors a year. The only good news over the past few years has been because of the more concentration on church planting, finally taking hold 
that were kind of stemming the downward tide. But there are many churches that are just having a slow funeral. And I don't know about you, I don't want to lead a slow funeral. I don't want to be a part of a slow funeral. It's not my calling in my life. But that's where a lot of our churches are. And many of them are dying. Even in our county. And just think if old Peter had not been able to be sensitive to the Spirit and, and that heavenly vision. And but I ain't stepping over that threshold. Excuse my ain't. The early church would never have had the impact it did. And I love what we find in chapter 11. When he told them what he was doing and what the Spirit of God had done, they were excited about it. Because people were coming to Christ. Secondly, we must always be handing the church off to the next generation. Always. Where are you going to be in 10 years? I'm going to be 67 years of age. We must always... Quit laughing, wife. We're, must, <laughs> we must always be... Handing the baton. When I, when I was in college, I paid for my college. It was a small college. I didn't have world-class speed. But I ran the 1600 relay. I ran the, uh, the uh, 400 relay at my university. And it paid for tuition, books, and other things for me. Otherwise, I probably would not have been able to go to college. And didn't have, you know, all the nutrition and all the weight training and stuff. So... My best time was uh, in the 400, about a, a 48 uh, to 49. That was pretty good in 1980. Well, that's what women are running today uh, in college. <laughs> but you know, there must be that handing off of the baton. That's the critical thing. How do we hand it off and not drop it and not mess it up? And we've got to keep doing that. And that's a very critical stage in the life of the church. And that's the critical stage this church is in. And then thirdly, the older, more mature believers must be willing to make the sacrifices most where necessary for the church's light to shine brightly. We are to be the most mature. And our focus needs to be how can we bring our students and our children and our young adults along to hand it off to them. And we must be the ones who are willing in our lives to make the biggest adjustment so that the church can be luminaries for her future. And I'm thankful to be part of a church where I, I believe that's our heart. I've had older leaders come up to me in our choir, among our deacons, among our teachers to say, Pastor, we're willing to do whatever it takes to help our church be effective and faithful to the gospel. My deacons have said, we have your back. We will stand together so that we can go forward and do what God would have us to do. I love seeing the growing numbers of children. Some of you senior adults come and say to me, I love all the children that come in for the baptism. I didn't know we had that many children. I love the growing diversity of our church. I love the growing numbers of students. We have so much more to do. And we'll have to make more adjustments to make our campus regarding our buildings and parking and staff and our model of ministry to, to be all that it needs to be to reach people. But if we don't keep reaching forward, you'll begin a slow funeral, as so many churches are doing around here.
in our community. One near step we're going to begin to work on is paying down the educational building. We recently paid $100,000 extra on the principal because our giving was so strong last year. It's now down to less than $1.2 million. And I just encourage us to begin just, we'll talk more about it, a soft campaign quietly to pay that building off as we are working already on plans for the future things we need to do. And then thoroughly and finally and quickly, one other thing about Peter, he also had to consider his mission field. Peter, when he went to Cornelius' door, he had to have in his mind ultimately this, I'm saved, I know where I'm going, I have eternal life, this man doesn't. He's my mission field. And I have to ask myself, what is best for Cornelius right now to help me get the message to his ear? And let the Holy Spirit drive it to his heart. Peter had died to himself, as all the apostles would come to do. And now the central question is, how can I fulfill the calling I have to this person, these people outside of Christ? What role am I to play in seeing this person come to know Christ and to escape the coming judgment, to escape hell? God had shown Peter in that vision his plan. It included all types of people. And Peter's job was now to find the way to bring them into the family. He had that same mindset Paul had. I don't have time to read it, but go read 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 following, where Paul says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I might in some way win some. To the Jew I became a Jew. To the Gentile I became a Gentile. And I want you to know that that's not just Paul's calling, that's ours. We realize and submit to the fact that this is our calling. It is not an option if we're to fulfill our call to be luminaries. We have great models, both in Scripture and beyond Scripture, of taking this calling seriously. And churches' models as well. So out of church history, we have Hudson Taylor in the 19th century, in the 1800s, went to China, 21 years of age, with a particular mission group. Nothing was really happening And so he struck out and began to do things differently. He founded the China Inland Mission. Went on to be the most effective mission agency, really, of the the, uh, 19th century. 21 years of age, he started dressing like the Chinese people. (laughs) We ain't never done it that way before, Hudson. And a lot of people got really mad at Hudson. As a matter of fact, the other missionaries got mad at him for what he did. But he built this whole China Inland Mission around certain principles that he followed, and it became a great, 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 great mission agency. It's the beginning of the faith mission movement. He was willing to do what it took. For a variety of reasons, some professing Christians would rather live in disobedience than to do what it takes to consider the outsider. And it is a great sin to do that, from which some need to turn, if indeed we're truly believers. Now beyond that, we're going to explore some other things as well in the coming weeks. You realize that we're not only called to be luminaries, but there's some other ways God's given us to think about this. One is we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? Another thing we're called in both 1 Peter and in Revelation chapter 1 is we're called priest of God. Did you know you're a priest? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You are a priest. 
Do you get up in the morning and think that I am a priest of God? And how does this affect my life? What does a priest do, preacher? I've never heard of that one. Well, four things. One writer said that as priests, we're to reflect the holiness of God. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're to intercede for mankind before God. And we're to represent God before mankind. That's quite a calling, isn't it? And that's going to affect how Don lives and how Concord lives if we think of ourselves as priests of God and ambassadors. And so if you'd stand, I stand up. That's what I meant. So you, if you'd stand, oh, you're tired. Thank you for your patience and listening. We're about to sing just as I am. And I'm not looking for a bunch of, you know, outward walking down the aisle to say I'm making this commitment. But I, I said to you at the beginning today, I'm looking for one commitment. And that is this, will you commit, and me as well, to taking the concrete steps necessary to be a luminary? Are we willing to deal with our ethics and traditions? Are we willing to consider how we can best order our lives and live as a church to be luminaries? Handing this church off to the coming generations to help it keep engaging the world. Are we willing to die to ourselves to consider the outsider? To not just say we're ambassadors, light bearers, priests, but to really conform our lives to that standard. That's the decision that needs to be made by all of us that I lay before you today. Being a light bearer involves concrete spiritual commitments. Are we willing to make those? If you're here today and you've not trusted Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about how you can know for certain you have eternal life maybe you've trusted him and i've been baptized you need to take those next steps maybe god's leading you as well to be a part of our fellowship just as you are you make those decisions father bless us now in this time of commitment accomplish what you want help me as a man as a husband as a pastor to be what i'm supposed to be our church. God, thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for what you're doing. We're on the cusp, Lord, I believe, of something magnificent. So, Lord, help us be truly people who make decisions to be ambassadors, to be priests, to be your light now as we sing in Jesus' name. Just as I am.